1, and today I want to talk to you about understanding the Bible. And I want to help you today to understand the Bible, but I want you, I, I'm not going to like help you understand every sentence in the Bible, right? Because we ain't got enough time for that. You have to discover some of this on your own. But I want to give you a big picture view of the Bible. I'm going to show you how it was written, what it was written for, and then what we need to do with it and how we need to see it when we read it. Is that all right? Thank you. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 says this, that anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise. Like a person who builds a house on solid rock. So that's what Matthew 7 says, that anyone who listens to my word, but then does what it says, here's the promise, they're like a wise carpenter who built their house on solid rock. I was in the foundation business for nine years before I became full-time in the ministry. I was a, a commercial contractor, concrete contractor. And I did, we poured building uh, hospital uh, foundations. We did parking garage foundations. And the crazy thing about being a foundation person is that you're the guy who, who has the hardest work, but you get the least reward, right? Because the thing about a foundation is, is that you come in and you got to break the ground and you got to do all these things and you got to herp and get that foundation in so that everybody else can come and put their pretty stuff on top. So you work hard to make it square and you work hard to make it flat and smooth and pretty. And then everybody comes and they push dirt up against it and they put wood on top of it and you never get to see it again unless you have a problem. But the reality is, is that it doesn't matter what you put on top of that foundation. If it ain't no good, it's all going to come down. It doesn't matter how good your marriage looks. It doesn't matter how pretty your kids are. It doesn't matter how much money you make. If your foundation isn't any good, it can all come crumbling down. Right? Amen. So it's, it's important to build our lives on the solid rock of God's word. So a person who builds his life on God's word tends to stay in the center of God's will. It's funny because as a pastor, I see people when they come to church and I'm, I'm in the business of watching people. So I like to watch people. So I'll watch some people that come to church and they'll, they'll come to church for the first time and they'll, they'll fall in love with it. Oh man, you know, the people, they usually say this, all oh, the people are so real. They're just genuine. You know, it's not fake. And we've never wanted to create a fake place where we use big, long Christianese words and try to impress you with our speech. We're just real people with real problems and, but we serve a real Jesus. And so we've always tried to create that place, but then people will come and they'll fall in love and then they'll get excited and they'll get faithful and they'll keep coming back. And, and I love to watch them because they'll start to change. You see, you don't come in the door and we tell you how to dress. You don't come in the door and we don't tell you you can't wear makeup because some of you, 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 it's good that you wear makeup. And so we, I said, I heard the brakes, but I just couldn't quite stop it all the way. And so... And if for some of you, you come in, we don't tell you how to act, but you just get around other life-giving people and your countenance starts to change. So here's the good news. Some of you look better today than the first time you came to church. Come on. But then what happens is, is they'll, you'll start to get involved and you'll find your way to next step and you'll get plugged into on the dream team and you'll start to serve. And I've had people, man, come to me, man, pastor, I've had dreams of children's church. The Lord gave me visions. And I'm like, man, praise God. That's awesome. Woo. And for some reason, there's like this eight month honeymoon or so. And then all of a sudden at about Mark eight month, a storm comes. And it frustrates me as a pastor. Can I just be real with you this morning? That's why I'm doing this series. 
is because it frustrates me because I see people that are motivated and they're excited and they're energetic and they're ready to go and, they, and we get them plugged into the church. But somehow or another, they substitute being plugged in with the church with growing with Christ and they don't end up growing with Christ. And then the storm comes and what happens? Their life gets shattered. And then all of a sudden they go from having dreams of the thing that they were going to do to now I can't show up. And so for me, I go, man, what's, what's the problem? Where's the issue? I'm a problem solver. So through prayer and everything else, I've just been praying, God, what's the problem? And he just, I just feel like he told me, he said, go back foundational, son. Go back to the beginning because when there's a problem, you need to go all the way to the beginning and check it again. And so for four weeks, we're going to spend time on God's word. And I promise you, if you'll do what's talked about over the next four weeks, you'll begin to fall in love with God's word and you'll begin to discover its power. Watch this. And then you'll begin to build your life on this word. And when the storms come, because they're going to come, you're going to look at them and go, I, I'm good. Amen. So that's what we're going to do for the next four weeks. Because what happens is, is people get off mission and they, they lose the vision of reaching people and building lives. And so today I want to help you understand God's word and How do we get from the discipline of having to read our Bible to the love of I want to read my Bible? How do we go from got to to get to? You follow me this morning? I want to get us from the got to. Like you feel like I got to read my Bible and it becomes like a chore. Like you got to clean the toilet or you got to mop the floors or you got to take out the garbage. I'm just trying to relate it here this morning. Some of you feel the same way about your Bible. How do we go from that to I get to? Where it becomes an exciting privilege. Amen? First, we have to begin to understand it before we can start to love it. And so I want to help you today understand the Bible better. When I first met Cheryl, I, I, you know, some of you know the story. It was love at first sight. I fell in love with her. She thought I was a dumb jock. I've convinced her that I'm not a jock anymore. I'm just working on the dumb part. And so, so (laughs) we've been married for coming up on 20 years next month. And, and so the, the more I understand Cheryl, the more I love her. You see, you don't just love once and then that's all the love you have for your spouse. It's a it's a lifetime of growing together and loving each other more and more as you understand each other. Which reminds me of a story. I heard a guy the other day, he was walking on a beach in California and he ran across this bottle. It was a genie bottle. And the guy picks up the bottle and he rubs the bottle and the genie pops out. Good looking genie, bald headed with a beard. And and the genie says, the genie says, man, I'm glad you let me out. It's good to stretch a little bit. He says, what can I do for you? You get one wish. And the guy goes, really? I get a wish? He says, yeah, man, whatever you want. Really? Whatever I want? He said, yep. He says, man, I've always wanted to go to Hawaii. He said, but I'm scared to death to fly and I'm, I get seasick. So would you build me a highway from California to Hawaii? And the genie goes, well, you know, bro, asking for a bit much. That's a lot of concrete and rebar. You got something else? And the guy was kind of disappointed, and he goes, uh, will you help me understand my wife? And the genie goes, you want one lane or two? <laughs> I don't care what you say, that's funny. It's easier to build a bridge. <laughs> so my wife and I have been, we've been, we've been together for 20 years, and, and I haven't found that bottle that all of a sudden is going to help me 
understand my wife, but we've been working on our marriage and we've been working and together and some things have happened and we're starting to understand each other. We just recently got this book called A Strength-Based Marriage. And in here, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's written by Jimmy Evans and it's uh, the Gallup Poll Company or the organization Gallup Poll has something to do with this. And in here, in the first couple of pages, you can go to the Gallup Poll website and you can take a strength test. Basically, you answer a bunch of questions. It's like an assessment, and we get to discover our strengths. And so we, we, we paid for the 34 strengths. We wanted to find out the whole thing. And so we took the assessment, my wife and I, and, you know, you kind of go into those things a little bit apprehensive. You're kind of like, uh-oh, what's it going to show? You know, so we took the test, and the results come back, and I'm looking at mine. I'm going, oh, yeah, that's pretty good. Oh, my top five is looking great. I'm going, whew, I'm, I'm the man. And it's, it's all kind of aggressive stuff. It's like production and getting stuff done and I'm going to you know, see things in the future, this kind of thing. And my wife's comes up and it's all these sweet little things like empathy. I think empathy was number two for my wife. She's like, well, where's your empathy? I'm like, I don't know. 26. <laughs> That's why when she's sick, I don't feel sorry for her. I'm like, I try to, but Anyway, so we, we started to understand each other a whole lot better. Great test. Great, great book. We're going through this book right now. In fact, we're going to do a life group uh, starting this summer semester, a seven-week life group on this book. So if you want to join that, you can contact me or my wife and get in on that. We're going to kick off, I think, June the 16th on a Friday night. Just a little commercial. But the, but the point is this, is that the more we get to understand each other, the more we love each other. You see, the more I understand Cheryl's strengths, and she understands mine, the more we love each other. So it is with the Bible. The more you understand why the Bible was written, who it was written for, what it was written for, you can better understand it and then better love it. Amen? So that's, that's the message today. So let's, let's jump right into it. The word Bible literally just means book. It's the Greek word for Bible is biblios. Uh, it's not a little B book. It's actually a capital B book because it's an important book. In fact, it's the most popular book ever written. Um, it's been translated more than any other book, and it's in more countries than any other book. And next week, I'm going to bring you a message to show you how to defend this book. Uh, so, so you don't want to miss that message next week. But, but here's just a small bit from next week. It took 1,600 years to write the Bible. 16, a span of 1,600 years. What I'm about to give you is pretty remarkable. 1,600 years to write the Bible. It was in over a dozen countries on three continents by four different, 40 different people. So think about that. 1,600 years the Bible was written by 40 different people. Pretty remarkable, right? The Bible literally was written by poets, prophets, princes, kings, sailors, soldiers, attorneys. I couldn't get over that one. Doctors, farmers, scholars, shepherds, priests, historians, fishermen, tax collectors, and businessmen. Those are the people that actually wrote the Bible. It was written in caves, ships, homes, palaces, prisons, and deserts. 1,600 years it took to write this book that we call the Bible. 40 different writers. 
You say, wow, man, how can that, how can that be? Because you see, the miracle is, is that when you read the Bible all the way through, you discover that there's one theme to the Bible. It all makes sense. It all has a purpose. It all has a plan. It, it has one running theme through the whole thing. How can that be over 1,600 years, all these different places, all these different people? How can it be 40 different writers? You want to know how? 40 different men held the pen, but one God breathed the words. Amen? It was God who breathed the words into those men to write the Bible. In fact, 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, and 17 says, All scripture is God-breathed. In other words, God's the one who spoke this to the guys with the pens in their hands. He spoke this to them to write this down, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So watch this. God breathed the letters that we needed to hear to train us in righteousness. Watch this. So that we would be well equipped to do the good works that God wants for us to do. You see, you're on the planet to do good works. We don't do good works to get God to love us. We do good works because he loves us. Amen? And so if you don't get in this, you don't have no equipment. You're trying to fix the engine with a hammer. It's just not going to work. Right? This is where your equipping comes from. It comes from the Bible to give us good works. Why do we need good, need good works? Because the, the, God's word says that, if, that it's the goodness of God that draws men to repentance. Well, how does God get his goodness to people? Through all of us. Amen? Is this making sense so far? Shake your head or I'm going to go real long. Trying to prove a point. (laughs) The Bible just works. So understanding the Bible. Let's look at it from the Old Testament. So the Old Testament, you got to know this. The Bible's not written in order. Okay? So let me just make some, for some of you, this will be the first time you hear this. The Bible's actually not written in order. So if you start on page one, it's not going to make sense all the way through. I don't know why, but when man organized the Bible, they put it in sections according to the types of books. Okay, so the first five books of the Bible, basically Genesis through Deuteronomy, are called the books of law. And this is when God's given up, uh, was given, this is when the law was given and and when uh, man entered the promised land and all those things. That was in the five books of Genesis through Deuteronomy. Those are the law books. And then you get into the 12 books called the historical books. And those books are from Joshua to Esther. So basically the Old Testament, besides the five first law books, is basically in those 12 books called the historical books. Okay? So it's 12 books from Joshua to Esther. When Esther's story ends, actually the Old Testament ends right there. But then you've got a bunch of more books, right? What I'm about to show you is, is those next couple of books are called the poetical books. The next five books from Job to Song of Solomon are called poetical books. Um, and they find themselves in those 12 historical books. Making sense? So those five poetical books find themselves in the 12 historical books. And then you have the prophetical books, or the prophetical, and those are 17 books with five major prophets from Isaiah through Daniel to 12 minor prophets from Hosea to Malachi. 
And the reason they're called major and minor prophets is because there was more information on some than there was on other. It doesn't mean that one was greater than the other. Okay, makes sense? So the poetical books and the prophetical books are all found in the 12 historical books. So when you read the 12 historical books, that's where those other books belong. You say, okay, Pastor, that's great, but that's still confusing. I mean, I'm going to figure out how to read this, then that, then this, then that. Well, somebody was frustrated too and made a chronological Bible. And I would encourage you to try to read a chronological Bible one time. So I, I just started a new Bible plan on version two days ago, and it's the, the one-year chronological Bible. I've never read the Bible chronologically all the way through. And so my wife's been doing it. So what they've done is they've taken the Bible like it's supposed to be read, and they put it in order for you. Come on, say that's good. So somebody helped you out. So you can read the Bible, three, three books a day, basically, all the way through in a year in the order that it's supposed to go. And from what they tell me, it's supposed to be pretty incredible to do. So I would encourage you to do that. You can do that on you version, or you can do that in your own paper Bible. Come on, somebody. You got to go buy the chronological. They make them in paper form. So make sense? Okay, so then we get into the, the New Testament. But before we get into the New Testament, we actually have 400 years of silence. There's nothing's written for 400 years. I mean, the world's still going on. The children of Israel are still doing their thing. All this stuff's happening. But for four years, 400 years, there's silence. And then we get into what's called the New Testament. The New Testament begins with four books called the Gospels. The gospel is just a, basically a church name for good news. So the gospel means good news. I would hope it would say the best news. Because <laughs> the gospel is really the best news that you could ever receive. Amen? So the, the, the four gospels were written by four different people. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, and it tells the story from Jesus' birth until his ascension in heaven. What I find interesting is that God chose to use four different people to write the gospel four different accounts of the gospel. And if you just took the New Testament gospels and you read all four of those, you would realize that somebody greater than mankind had to be breathing on this thing in order for them to get their story straight. 1,600 years to write the whole Bible. Things just didn't happen every day. You couldn't send an email. You couldn't send a text. You couldn't do none of that. It was like writing on homemade paper. Then like somebody had to fold it up nice and gently and cover it. And, and then they walked it. You follow me? The fact that you could read the four, the four first gospels and realize they're all the same helps you understand that there's something different about this book. So those are the four gospels. And they talk about Jesus' birth all the way to the ascension in heaven. Then after the Gospels comes the first church. The first church gets established. That's the book of Acts. So the book of Acts is now the historical part of the New Testament. So basically when you read the New Testament, what's happening after the Gospels in the book of Acts, everything you read after the book of Acts happened in the book of Acts except for Revelations. Make sense? So what happened is, is in the book of Acts, a guy named Paul, who was persecuting the church, gets knocked off of his horse, blinded, put into a house by himself for three days. Uh, God sends a Christian in there to talk to him. The Christian gets him. Basically, Paul gives his life to Jesus. 
And then he, he gets appointed by God to go and start planting churches. And Paul starts planting churches all over the region. And so in the book of Acts, you can read, Paul journeyed here, Paul journeyed there, Paul went here. Paul wanted to go here, but the Holy Spirit said, no, go here. And then he planted churches all along the way. That all happened in the book of Acts. What you read after the book of Acts is what's called the epistles. That's just a fancy word for letter. So everything from Romans through Jude is basically letters that Paul wrote the most of them. He wrote most of them. So, so those are letters that Paul wrote to the different churches that he planted. Make sense? Shake your head. So Paul wrote the letters to the different churches that were planted. So, so why do you need to know that? Because when you read the epistles, you need to understand that these are letters from the guy who planted the church to the pastors of the church in the different cities. You need to understand that. And, and by the way, Paul wrote most of them from prison. He wrote most of them from prison. You got to understand something. This thing was huge. This wasn't just like a little town that, that they, they went in the four corners of the town and planted some little churches. This was like massive all over this big old region and there was, they were exchanging gifts and they were exchanging supplies and money and letters were going back and forth. Paul was overseeing the churches from prison and all this was happening. And we get to read about it. We get to read the letters. And why? Why is it important to read those letters? Because it was Paul's instructions to the churches on how to be who God's called you to be. How to be the church. So if you ever want to know what you need to do, since you've given your life to Jesus, read the New Testament. It'll help you out. Amen? Making sense? And then we get into the book of Revelations, which is the 66th sixth book. I couldn't get that right in the first service neither. It's the last book of the Bible. We get a picture of how all this is going to end. Basically, the disciple John was uh, sentenced to an island to spend the rest of his days on this island. And there on that island, God gives him a vision of what the end is going to look like. John pinned it all down. God breathed it. And the book of Revelations tells you what the end is going to look like. A lot of people are scared of the book of Revelations. It's, it's really a pretty tough book to understand. And we'll, we'll teach a series on it one day. But, but that's the last book. It's the book of Revelations. It's going to tell us how this whole thing is going to end. And so I hope that helps you. Does that help anybody? Just a little bit. Kind of help you out some just to help you understand the Bible a little bit. So that's the way it's going to end in Revelations. And so now I want to give you a picture. I want to give you a mirror image of what this looks like from the Old Testament to the New Testament. I want to build a, a, an image in your mind this morning. And it's like a mirror. I want you to see something. You see, we start off with God and righteous man. God and righteous man in paradise. So if you go into the book of Genesis in chapter 1, it talks about how he created this place for, for mankind to live. He created Adam, then out of Adam he created Eve, and they lived in this perfect place called paradise. Paradise was perfect. Mankind was perfect. Everything was perfect. The Bible says that God would come and he would walk with mankind in the cool of the day. Think about that. You need to let that burn into your mind for a minute. That God's original design, his, his dream was to create a place called paradise that he could go and he could dwell and walk and be with his people 
in perfection. You see in this. But then what happens is, is that Satan and sin enter the picture. And so Satan comes in. You know how he comes. He comes like the serpent. He convinces Eve to eat from the tree. Eve takes from the tree, eats, gives it to her husband. Sin comes in. God comes in. Adam and Eve are now ashamed of what they are. They never knew what shame was before this point. They're hiding when God's looking for them. God says, where are you? They say, we're hiding. He said, well, why are you hiding? They said, because we're naked. He said, well, how do you know you're naked? <laughs> Who told you you were naked? You never knew what nakedness was before that. And so from that point on, basically God cursed the, the, the serpent, the woman, and the man, and he kicked them out of paradise. So it's a good point right here to say this, that, that sin separates us from God. You've got to understand this, that sin doesn't change God, it changes us. Sin has never changed God. It's always changed us, and it's, it's brought this separation, this gap. And some of you walked in here feeling that this morning, maybe, that there's this gap, there's this distance between you and God, and he feels like he's a million miles away, and you can't seem to get close. It could be because there's sin in your life. Listen to me. I didn't say that to condemn you. I said that to free you, because all of us have had sin in our life, and all of us have been separated from God at one point or another. And, and all I'm trying to do is give you the little bit of a secret called forgiveness and confession. Ask God and confess your sins to him and ask him to forgive you. The Bible says that he'll forgive you and then he'll cleanse you. And then after that, you're back into relationship with him. Amen. So sin separates us from God. And then when sin comes in, chaos comes in. And so Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden and things just got worse. They, they started having kids and the kids were crazy. And just things weren't good. So God said, you know what? He, he, he looked for a man who was still righteous and he found Noah and his family. And he said, I'm going to judge the world. So God judges the world with a flood. So he, he rescues Noah, tells the man, build this big old boat. They've never seen rain before. He says, it's going to flood. Just put, put this and that. Gives him very specific instructions. Noah puts everything on the boat. The floods come, the waters come from underneath, the waters come from the top. 150-something days, the earth was flooded. 22 feet above the highest, peak of the, of the highest peak of the earth was the water. Covered the earth. God wiped out every living creature except for what he spared. And so when the water settled down, Noah and his children, they came off the boat and they started repopulating the earth. Well, that didn't work. That went bad too. Come on. <laughs> And then and God wasn't going to judge the earth again right then. So, so they began to build what is called a one world government system. You remember the story of Babel? The Bible says that they were of one language, one accord. They had one vision. Basically, this, the whole people on the earth came together and said, if we can't get God to come to us, we're going to go to God. We're going to make our own way to God. And they started to, they had plans to build a tower. It so much so got God's attention that he said, if we don't do something... They're going to succeed. You need to go read it because it's pretty crazy. So God comes in and he confuses their language, basically gives them all kinds of different languages. Confusion hits the camp. Everybody gets separated, spread out. And then God says, okay, I'm going to try this. And he, he, he develops the 12 tribes of Israel, his holy people. All this was done to help us understand and to help us see that God had an ultimate plan called Jesus Christ. 
So God's ultimate plan was Christ. He's at the top of the chart. I don't know if it's there. There it is. It's Jesus Christ. So all of that was done to get to Christ. Are you seeing this? So Christ is the ultimate plan. Now, why is Christ the ultimate plan? Because Christ was going to be the one to take God's laws that were external, that were flesh to mankind. And he was going to take Christ and use Christ to put those laws in our heart. Making sense? No? Yes? So, so in the Old Testament, you could say everything was external, but in the New Testament, everything's internal. And God said, I'm going to start new with Christ. And when somebody gives their life to Christ, I'm going to plant my laws on the inside of their heart through our relationship. Are you seeing this? So then Christ has 12 disciples or the church, which is God's plan. And that's God's holy people. And by the way, that's the time. This is the time that we're living in right now. The church is still being built today, by the way. Just thought I'd let you know. God's still building his church today. It, it didn't stop when the book stopped. Because actually the book hasn't stopped. The church is still being built today. The Bible's still being written today. Chew on that. God's still building his church today. So what does that mean? That means that we're still responsible for building his church. We're not going to go and spend eternity until God has enough people in his church. I'm not talking about the actual building. I'm talking about the family of God across the globe. When God has enough people, he's going to say, okay, son, you can go get them. So if you're tired of this place and you're tired of the humidity and the mosquitoes and the calories and the, the, the bills and everything else, start leading people to Jesus. Build this church and let's see if we can't get out of here. Come on. So that's God's plan. And we're living in that plan right now. We're responsible for building his church. But here's the crazy thing is the world we live in is still corrupt. It's still corrupt. In fact, we're in the process right now, the world is, of developing a one world government system again. It's happening. It's happening all over the place with Russia, the Middle East, all these things. You're living in the middle. We may be the generation that Christ comes back in. There's more signs being fulfilled today than there ever was in history at one time. We could be in that moment right now. And what do you want to get caught doing? When Christ comes back, what do you want to be caught doing? Being on Facebook? Or leading somebody to Jesus? Or giving your life away? Right? So that we're back to a one world government system. And then God's going to come and he's going to judge the world again. You starting to see the mirror? He's going to judge the world. This time it's not going to be with water. It's going to be with fire. And he's going to purify. And he's going to start over fresh and new. And here's some good news. Satan and sin are going to exit. They entered, but they're going to exit once and for all. Come on, somebody. That's good news right there. Satan and sin. <laughs> How many of you just trying to get sin out your mind today? <laughs> Much less out of the universe completely. So Satan and sin are going to leave. And then the last point is this. We find in the book of Revelations that God and redeemed man are going to be together again in paradise. Not God and righteous man, but God and redeemed man. In other words, from the beginning of the book, we were in paradise together. 
But by the end of the book, we're going to be in paradise again together because he's going to redeem us back to himself. Isn't that good? That's good news. Good news. Do you know the word paradise in the Greek, the only or the closest English translation we have to that word paradise in English, watch this, is the word resort. Now, come on, somebody. Like, okay, maybe you have never been to a resort before, but like a resort's a nice place where you go and people take care of you and it's all lovely and everything's perfect. So paradise, our English translation says it's like a resort. Some people go, man, you know, I can't wait for the afterlife. I'm like, forget that, man. That is the life. We're living in the before life and this thing's broke down, busted and disgusted. I want to get to the life I just want to make sure I'm at the resort. I don't want y'all to be at the resort without me going, man, where's pastor? I thought he would have been here. <laughs> I want to be at the resort. I want to make sure my name's written in the book of life so that when, when Jesus comes back and we get, we get taken up and we get brought back into paradise, I want my name to be in the book so they can say, Jamie, come on in. Like, oh, boy. I need shots or what? <laughs> I kind of hope we're not naked. I mean, I'm just saying, now that you've been naked and you know you're naked, it's just kind of weird now, right? I don't know why I said that. But it's going to be like a resort. That's why I want to press us in to build our lives on this word. And for this to be the foundation of our lives. Because listen to me. Just because you go through hard times, just because things get difficult, doesn't mean you're in a wrong place. All this book does is it gets you to continue to stand and finish the race no matter what happens to you. Amen? Some of you need to get the attitude that come hell or high water, I'm feeling this, I'm finishing this race. I'm going all the way to the end. I didn't start just to stop halfway. I'm going all the way. I may be dragging... I saw a thing this weekend, a 106-year-old man ran this big old marathon. Well, he didn't actually run, but he kind of walked it. But 106 years, and they were all, he was like the last one, of course. And he's coming across the finish line, 106 years, and he's just like this. For some of you, you're like, I'm coming into heaven just like this. Maybe me, I don't know, but I'm going to make sure I'm there. Don't matter how I get there. I'll get a new body when I get there. So does that help? Does that help you see how things have happened? It helps you to understand your Bible differently. I just want you to see it a little bit different. I want you to see that God's original dream was that we would be in paradise together. And that's still his dream today. That's still his goal. That's still what he's pressing for. The Bible says he's being patient so none would perish. By the way, hell's not a place that God sends people that he's mad at. Hell is just a place where people decide to pay for their own sin. Heaven is a place where people decide to let Jesus pay for their sin. Not because they live good enough, just because they decided to let Jesus pay for their sin. So what's the subject of the Bible? You ask people that and some would say it's us. That would be a wrong answer. The subject of the Bible is Jesus. Jesus was in Genesis. Jesus was the fourth man in the fiery furnace. 
Jesus is all the way through the scriptures. There was 300 prophecies given about Jesus in the Old Testament. He was there in the beginning. He was in the fiery furnace and he's been there the whole time. The subject of the Bible is Jesus. We're the object of the Bible. We're why Jesus came because God loves us. In John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus said these words to the people in the New Testament. He said, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. He says, you dig into these things looking for something to give you eternal life. He said, but you're missing the point because all the scriptures, they point to me. So why do we read our Bible? To get more Jesus. Why do we get up in the morning crusted-eyed trying to get some caffeine in us to get some more Jesus? I was reading my Bible this morning. And I was like, wipe your eyes. I'm like, that's why I couldn't see. Lord. Anyway. He's in the scriptures. He's the subject. When you read it, you get him. We need to see it that way. We get him when we study it and when we read it. We read the Bible, we find Jesus. So what's the verb of the Bible? Most people would say love. And that's almost correct, but it's not really correct because love is the motivation for the verb. What's the verb of the Bible? Go with me to John chapter 3, verse 16. Most of you know this one. It says this because the the verb of the Bible is actually greater than love. It says this, for God so loved the world that he gave. The verb of the Bible, watch this, is give. Give. That's the verb of the Bible. Why? Because he loved us enough that he gave. He started it. It's to give. You need to see the Bible that way. And let me warn you this morning that that when you read this thing, if if you'll get serious about this book, I just want to give you a little bit of warning because I don't want you to get sideswiped. When you start to read this thing, your things, your stuff, it's not going to mean much anymore. It's going to lose value in your sight. That precious, watch this now, I'm preaching, that precious Ford, I don't know how it gets devalued (laughs) somehow when you read your Bible, your things mean less to you because the Bible's verb is give and you read this thing and you start to understand how much God gives us. It compels you to want to give your life away. And that's the point. That's why he wrote it to us. That's why he gave it for us so that we would get compelled on our own to give. That everything that I have in my possession is his. My life, my breath, my children. Sometimes it's easy to send your kids on to be with Jesus. (laughs) And I can't wait for them to get to college. Lord, I'm giving them to you. I just feel like I want to bless you, Lord. (laughs) Bless you with this hard-headed kid. And the kid's going to bless you with my parents. But the motivation is, is love, but the verb is to give. When you read this thing, it's going to cause you to give. Watch this. Not just your treasure. You see, some of us get hung up on tithes and offerings, and we think that's the greatest form of giving. That's not the greatest form of giving. 
That's actually the first form of giving. It's the simplest form of giving. But I don't know why, but we have such a hard time with that. The Bible says that no greater love has one man than to lay his life down for another. The greatest gift you can ever give is your complete life. What does that mean, Pastor? How does that work out? That means, you know what? I just get this attitude and I stay prayerfully with this attitude that, God, this is your life. God, this is your family. God, that's your oldest daughter. (laughs) Now you fix her. (laughs) Just pick it. She don't need no fix. She's perfect. Right? But we live with an attitude that everything that I have belongs to you. I don't hold nothing back. You know how many people are miserable today because they got to a point reading this book and it started compelling them to give and then they got to a crossroad somewhere and God was calling them to do something and they drew a line. You see, God doesn't draw lines, we do. We'll get to a place where God's starting to lead us to give and we'll give and we'll discover the power and all that But then sometimes we get to this place where we go, God, that's just untouchable. You know how many missionaries are sitting at home right now? How many people that are supposed to be in other countries helping other people? You know how many people are supposed to be preaching the gospel as a pastor, but they're not because they won't answer the call because they won't give up their life? Their time, their talent, their abilities... It compels us to give. What do I give, Pastor? You just give whatever's in your hands. You just give whatever you got. And if you get in the habit of giving, he's going to get in the habit of giving you back and replacing. Amen? Because he's going to want you to give more. That's what this book's going to do to you. But let me tell you something. If you start to do that, don't be afraid. You need to be excited because you're going to start to live an adventurous life. It's not going to be mundane. It's not going to be boring. It's not just going to be about church on Sunday. You're going to see God working in your business, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your job, in your hobbies, at the gym, at the golf course, on the lake, at the deer lease. Where else? Is there any other places to go? Even at the Sonic. But you'll start to see him work everywhere. And you'll live a life, live a life that's incredible. So, so John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave. Look at what 1 John 3.16 says. We know that what real love is. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. Isn't it funny that John 3.16 says that God gave. But in 1 John 3.16 it says we should give. What's God after? What does he want from us? What does he want from you? He wants your whole life for this temporary moment that we're on this planet so that he can redeem more people to himself so there can be more people when we get to eternity. Come on, somebody. It ain't just you and your best dog. It's it's you and everybody else in eternity, spending eternity. That's what God's trying to do. That's what God wants to get from you. He wants to get everything so that he can use your life to reach more people, to bring them back to God so that he can fill his house so that we can celebrate in paradise together. 
That's it in a nutshell. God wants all of you. Are you ready to surrender all of you? Are you ready to give it all up?